Uh, Mother Teresa was known for serving and loving the poorest in Kolkata, India. In fact, at the young age of 18, she knew that she wanted to dedicate her whole life to serving and loving the poorest in the world. And so over the course of her life, she was responsible for opening various different orphanages and hospices and even leper houses for the people that were the most uh, hurting in our world. And so she was best known for taking homeless children in, supplying them with food and shelter, and extending the love of Christ to them. You see, she wasn't motivated by the praise of others, but she simply strived to do the most good for people through, uh, through who are hurting and broken. In fact, she is known to say this. She says, do small things with great love, and that will change the world. And so because of the many small things that she has done throughout her life, many people were alleviated from poverty, but more than that, people came to know Christ. People came and were uh, influenced by her goodness. In fact, uh, you look at who are, who are the easily the most influential people in the 21st, or the 20th century, and Mother Teresa is on that list. She has received acclaim and accolades from people all over the world because of her humanitarian efforts, because of her goodness that she spread in the world. But I think it's interesting that a lot of people want to do bigger things, lacking love, because it's easier to do those things, it's easier to accomplish things, and it makes us feel better that we are able to accomplish bigger things. And so on Saturday, July 13, 1985, the world was introduced to one of the largest rock concerts that ever happened in human history. There was no concert, concert that, rivaled, that rivaled this magnitude at Wembley Stadium in London. It lasted 16 hours, and it was broadcasted, over, broadcasted live over two different continents, the U.S. and the U.K. Roughly 1.9 billion people ended up tuning in to this concert, and this became a global event. And so it also was featuring 75 acts. So thinking of like Led Zeppelin and uh, U2. But no one took center stage quite like Queen did. In those 20 minutes that they were on stage, they solidified themselves as one of the greatest rock bands in history. What was this event called? It was called Live Aid. And prior to this event, the UK news had been detailing horrific images coming out of Ethiopia about starvation and famine. And so the organizers brought all of these acts together to alleviate the suffering in Ethiopia. It was heartbreaking. And so through it all, they were able to raise $127 million to aid Ethiopia. In spite of raising all of that money, very little went to actually alleviate the suffering in Ethiopia. Some have argued that this event made the situation worse in Ethiopia because a majority of that money went to the ruthless dictator Haley Miriam Mengistu, and who was directly responsible for that famine. Large bulk of that goodness, large bulk of that money didn't end human suffering, it promoted human suffering. So we look at that story, and how does something like that happen? Certainly it was something good that the organizers set out to accomplish. They saw hurting and broken people in need, and they wanted to do something good. 
But I think comparing the life of Mother Teresa versus what happened here, I think we can look and say the why one was successful and the other wasn't was because of motivation. Mother, Ter- Mother Teresa was uh, motivated to do good not on her own behalf, but for the benefit of others. And I think where the concert organizers, they were motivated to do a big thing, but they were motivated to receive the glory and the praise that they were able to end the suffering in Yakima, or not Yakima, Ethiopia. Um, they were self-motivated and not other-motivated. For me, like I see my own motivations lining up similarly to that, where I'm motivated to do good when it benefits me. I'm motivated to take a a prestigious position or sit on a prestigious board because it means that I look good in the eyes of other people. It also means that I take on chores at home, not because it's the right thing to do, but because I benefit when I accomplish work at home. I benefit personally when I take on all of these these good things that I do. But the reality is, is any good that I accomplish is nullified by my selfish motive. And just even looking more broadly, we see people take, uh, when they move from position to position in their company because it means that they get more honor. They get more glory from people amongst them. They make more money. They are more, there's more status with them. So it all comes back to what, is people, what are people motivated to do. Either we are motivated by ourselves or we are motivated for others. And so our motivation is what causes us to do good in our world. See, the problem today is not that we are incapable of doing good things. People everywhere in all cultures and spanning all different religions, they do good work in the world. The problem comes from our motivation. And most of the time, our motivation seeks to preserve and protect ourselves to grow our name and our reputation, to preserve our safety. And so what we do is we prioritize our desires over others. And this is what happens when we allow outside and our internal voices other than the word of God to find what goodness is. And so when we are pursuing a subjective feelings or subjective definition of what goodness is, we are not falling short of God's goodness, but we are missing, or we, we are uh, heading in the wrong direction. We are heading towards our selfish desires motivate, motivated by our own glory and by our own honor. We are not heading towards what goodness, what true goodness is. So this is why we have been in the sermon series this past few weeks, focusing on the fruit of the Spirit. As we walk with God, as we are abiding in Him, we begin to look the part of Christian And it has less to do with our morality, less to do with our philosophy, and less to do with our theology, and it has everything to do with our character. You see, the more that we walk with Jesus, the more that we are filled with love, with joy, with peace, with kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Last week, Pastor Kevin was talking about the fruit of the Spirit of kindness, And he defined kindness as this. He said, the choice to give ourselves to people without expecting anything in return. Highlighting that kindness is a verb and that it requires action. Today, though, we're looking at goodness. And so goodness and kindness are very closely related, yet they're very different. See, where kindness is a choice, goodness 
is a lifestyle. So we could define goodness as this. Goodness is godliness. It is a righteous life shown through our conduct and character. A person is not good because they say and they do good things because of what culture defines as being good. A person does good things because they are good. As we think about what goodness is, Jesus shows us this, what goodness is in Matthew 5, known as the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of Jesus' most famous sermons, and he's, uh, he's teaching us what it is to live in kingdom values. The Sermon on the Mount was revolutionary in what Jesus taught people. And so he was teaching through Matthew 5, 6, and 7 that our conduct flows from our character. What we do demonstrates who we are. But also in the Sermon on the Mount, that goodness doesn't come from striving more, from doing more, but it comes because of a changed identity. As we approach our passage today, we find two different metaphors that Jesus uses throughout these short verses, showing us what goodness looks like, and that's salt and light. Both are extremely uh, valuable and yet exceptionally common. So we find the first thing of what goodness is in that it enhances the people around me. Jesus says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Personally, I enjoy french fries. I enjoy going to fast foods and trying the different french fries at, at different uh, restaurants. But it's fascinating how you can take the same potato and do completely different things with it. For example, Wendy's, they tend to, to cut their fries with the skin on, and so it creates a little bit of a texture, a little bit of a flavor there. Uh, McDonald's, they just go and they skin the potato, and then they cut the potato and french, fry the french fries. But Chick-fil-A, they do something crazy. They cut their fries into waffle-shaped, and it creates more of a dipping, uh, dipping uh, surface area. But in spite of all of these differences, we find one thing in common amongst all of these french fries, and that's salt. All of them salt their fries, and it's taking the natural flavor of the potato, and it is enhancing them to be something different. You see, salt has a very unique chemistry uh, where it brings out the flavor in the foods that it's present in. In fact, if you are going to do any baking or any cooking, every recipe calls for salt. You cannot get away from cooking and baking without at least a pinch of salt. Um, and there was one time I was actually baking a cake, and I forgot that salt. And as, as it cooked and it baked and I ate it, something just seemed off about this cake. It didn't seem like it was as good of a cake as it could have been. And I realized it's because I forgot the salt to, that I had added in it. So it tasted like cardboard. It was still edible, but those flavors didn't enhance. They weren't enhanced because of the salt. So when Jesus tells us that we are the salt of the earth, he is expecting that Christians are making the world a better place, and it starts with the lives of the people around us. It is God's goodness working in our lives and through our lives to enhance the lives of others, not ourselves. At the core of this, it means that we have to be in relationship with people. Do we know people enough that we can enhance them? Do we walk alongside people enough where we make them better? And because we see that relationships are the primary ways in which we are to do good to others. 
And so as we think about doing good in our world, good works and good acts are always rooted in specific acts towards specific people. They're never just this general, hey, I need to do good for people in general, but there are specific acts towards specific people. And it is always motivated in the good of others above my own. But it means that we have to know and we have to love others in relationship. One of the things that we focus on here at Restoration Church is relationships. The beauty of the gospel is that we belong to each other from different backgrounds, from different socioeconomic statuses, from different ethnic backgrounds, and we come together not because of how we are different, but we come together because of the resurrection, which is unifying us. And it's in our relationships, it's through our community that we are able to focus on the truth and the beauty and the goodness of the resurrection. In fact, as I think about what, it, what does it look like to enhance the lives of others, one gentleman in, com- in, in particular comes to mind who used to come to our church. He had a tremendous impact on the lives of others not by doing grandiose and big acts for everybody. In fact, he was quite limited physically. His health and his age permitted, prohibited him from, from doing big things for people. Yet people saw him and they were encouraged because of the fact that they knew his physical limitations. They knew his health problems and yet he was consistently coming to church and people were enhanced by his life, by the fact that uh, we were, people were challenged by how he loved his wife. He was a man full of joy and happiness. If this man comes, if a picture of Dan Fitzgerald comes to mind, this is who this was. He had a deep love for all people, regardless of who they were. And so he enhanced the lives of people by doing small things with great love. And Dan had a greater impact on the lives of other people than he ever realized. But as we think about what true goodness is, we seek to enhance and better other people. This is what God is expecting of his children, that we walk alongside parents, that we walk alongside people in addiction. And it's not our goodness that makes people better, but it is God's goodness in us that makes people better. But if we're not willing to step into the lives of other people, Jesus gives this warning in verse 13. He says, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So this this is a verse that is a warning for us that if we're not going to stop leaning into our selfish motives, if we're going to look like the way that the world does, and we apply our false goodness on society, we become good for nothing. So God expects that we look differently in the world, and if we're not, he will cast us out. But not only does the fruit of goodness enhance the lives of people around me, but it is also seen in how goodness is a guide to others. Jesus says in verse 14, You are the light of the world A city on a hill cannot be hidden. So like salt, light has a unique purpose where it illuminates and it reveals what's hidden. Without the light, we can't see. We rely and we depend on the light of the day, on the lights in this room, and the lights in our house. 
Light is common, but valuable. And so where salt implies a preserver or enhancer, light implies a purity or moral uprightness. And so as we think about what light is, it guides others into truth and into safety. I love spending time on the coast. I love going to the ocean. And so uh, my family was able to get away last month, and we spent just a week in Long Beach. And I came across this sign as we were walking along, and it was saying that the mouth of the Columbia is one of the dangerous, um, the most dangerous waterways in the world. It's where you have the swift current of the Columbia meeting the tumultuous waters of the Pacific Ocean. And over the course of the last 200 years, when ships have been navigating the Columbia River, um, there have been over 200 shipwrecks just at the mouth of the Columbia alone. And it was just fascinating for me to see just a, an estimated location of all of the shipwrecks outside of the mouth of the Columbia. And there was something that happened in 1905 that drastically reduced the amount of shipwrecks at the Columbia River. And it was the second construction of the lighthouse in Long Beach. With that second lighthouse on that coast, it prevented or it, it made traversing the, the Columbia River safer. And so you can see the average went from about two to four shipwrecks a year to one every decade. This is what light does, is it guides and it protects people to, to, uh, to safety. And this is rooted in, in morality and ethics. But the, again, this is not our morality that we are displaying to the world. It is God's morals, God's uprightness, God's goodness shining through us. And so with true goodness, it allows people to see that the right and wrong, and it, it, it creates an ability to keep people from falling into the danger of sin. But this goodness is rooted in something other than ourselves. As we think about what it is to live out kingdom values in the Sermon on the Mount, we are recipients of the new kingdom. It means that we look and we act and we think differently because we have a new identity in Christ. At the heart of what goodness is, we find what Pastor Christopher Wright says. He says, light shines from people committed to compassion and justice and practical care for the needy. This morality comes from being shaped and formed by the person of Christ in our lives, but not by our own sense of compassion, not by our own sense of justice. I think it's easy to find people either committed to compassion or living out compassion lives, or people committed to justice. But if we desire to be good, then compassion and justice work together, providing practical care for the needy. Both are working together for our good and for the good of others and for society. And this is what it looks like to be moral. So the fruit of spirit that is committed to compassion, meaning that we are moved to compassion for the hurting and the broken around us. We don't just feel bad for them and say, oh, I'll pray for you, and I pat you on the back, and I send you on your way without stepping into their lives and meeting that need. It means that we are moved to do something. We are guided to do something about our compassionate feelings. In fact, every time that we see in the Gospels 
this phrase, moved to compassion, it always describes Jesus. It always describes what he's going to do next. In fact, there are multiple times in the gospel it says Jesus was moved to compassion and he fed the thousands. Jesus was moved to compassion and he healed the sick. Jesus was moved to compassion and he acted on that compassion for the hurting and the most broken amongst him. But our compassion should always move us into justice. And let me just say justice seeks to undo the pain that is caused by sin. In our culture, we often think and we often pursue and we say we long for justice. What we really long for is judgment. Justice is the undoing of what sin has done. And we can't claim to be good without a desire to see justice in our world. A world is clamoring for justice. But the reality is, is nothing in our world is going to do, undo the injustice that we see around us. Especially when we are rooted in our own understanding of goodness. Our un, own understanding of morality. And so we long for a better and truer justice that only comes through Christ. As we think about uh, compassion and justice working together for the practical care of the needy, we are effectively guiding people uh, that are in hopelessness, that are in despair, and that are in fear, and we are guiding them to a place of hope and peace. So if guidance is supposed to guide people, is your life guiding people to the hope of Jesus Christ? If not, I want to urge you on just challenging you on what your source of goodness is. Because all of our goodness is pointing people to the hope and the glory of Christ. See, true goodness not only enhances the lives of others, not only does it guide others to a place of hope, but the last thing that we find that Jesus wants to teach us about goodness is that goodness is active in serving and loving others. He goes on in verse 16, he says, In the same way, let your light shine so that they may see your good works. This is the key verse in understanding how we're supposed to live in our world. Christians are necessary to be salt and light in a world that is hurting, in a world that is broken, in a world that is corrupt. Because without Christians being salt and light, our world can't survive. And so God's plan to redeem the world is through the goodness of believers rooted in the church who are focused on his son. But good works are expected if we claim to be children of God. And I want to be clear here. The Bible tells us that we are saved by grace through faith and not our works. In fact, all of the Bible tells us that if we are striving to save ourselves by our works, we not only fall short, but God finds our works offensive. We see that our works are filthy, that they're offensive to God. And the Bible is very clear that good works, doing good in our world, does not save us. Doesn't make us good. Yet many people rest on their laurels of their work, thinking that that is going to get them into, into salvation, into saved. But we are only saved through a personal relationship with Christ. But as much as we're told that we're not saved by works, we are equally, if not more, told on how we are supposed to live in our world. 
And that's through our good works. We are to do good for our cities, for our communities, even our church. I think of back in the Old Testament when the Israelites were called to be a holy and separate nation. They were to to be distinct, not based on their theology, but based on how they loved and how they did good works for the nations around them. They were to be a light amongst the nations to draw people to God, not to repel people from God. But if we profess to be good people, then good works must be evident in our life. And this is just a very small sampling of what the Bible says about our good works. And in Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Galatians 6, 9, and 10, And let us not grow weary of doing good, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And Titus 3, 1, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work. Our good work doesn't just extend to the people that we like, doesn't just extend to the people that we love, it extends to everybody. How are we doing good work, not just for people that we love, but for people that don't love us? You see, Jesus is saying, if we call ourselves followers of Christ, then we must have a life that is overflowing of good works for the betterment of others. And some, may be, some of you may be thinking, doesn't Jesus say that we mustn't let our work, good works be seen? You are absolutely right. In fact, in Matthew 6, just a chapter after where we are, Jesus says in 6.1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. All right, so the case is closed. We can close the book. But this is why we have to go even a verse later and see what Jesus says about this. He says, Thus, when, uh, when they give to the need, uh, they sound no trouble for you as the hypocrites do, that they may be praised by others. Do you see what the motivation is? Either the motivation is glorifying yourself through your good works or glorifying someone else. So what we see Jesus teaching, not only in Matthew 6, but right here, is coming back to the problem that we are facing today, that we can't do and be good uh, on our own laurels, for our, our sake, for us getting our glory. But we must do good for the sake of giving glory to God. Looking back at Matthew 5, 16, we find the answer for us this morning. Jesus says, And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When we do good in the world, when we do good in the lives of other people, we are enhancing their lives, we are guiding people, and then we are pointing them to the goodness of God, not our own goodness. Making Him known, Him glorified in a lost and broken world, and not ourselves, not our safety, not our desires, but for the desires of others. And so we see this, we see that true goodness is motivated when we make God's name great, not our own. We can only be good because of God's goodness resting and abiding in us. It means that we enhance people's lives by proclaiming the greatness of God, the glory of God, and how he has redeemed us from our sins as we walk alongside other people and we point them to that same redemption that is available to them means that we guide people to the hope of the holiness of, of, and the righteousness of God. 
and not our own righteousness, not our own goodness, but God's goodness flowing through us. Everything that we say and do flows out of a desire to make God's name greater than our own. We are praising and we are glorifying God through our goodness, through our good works. In fact, the late Billy Graham says this. He says, The word good in the language of Scripture literally means to be like God because he alone is the one who is perfectly good. It is one thing, however, to have high ethical standards, but quite another for the Holy Spirit to produce the goodness that has its depth in the Godhood. As we think about this quote, our goodness does not come from having high moral ethical standards, which we should have, but our goodness comes from our relationship with the Holy Spirit, God the Father, and God the Son. As we reflect upon having the proper motivation to do good in our world, it always starts by looking at Jesus. This is the only person in our world who was good. And everything that he said, everything that he did was good. And it was all pointing us to his ultimate act of goodness. The feeding, the five th- the feeding of the thousands, the, his healing ministry, his preaching ministry, his rebuking religious leaders and speaking truth to power, they were all done pointing people to the ultimate act of goodness. And that was the death on the cross and the resurrection from the dead. As we think about the resurrection from the dead, this is the greatest act in human history. And it's not just an example for us to live by. It is the very thing that has redeemed us and has given us a new identity where we can be good, where we can pursue good, not out of our own motivation, but out of a motivation that comes from our relationship with Christ. You see, because of the resurrection, we have a a relationship with the Heavenly Father, And we can only be good through our relationship in Christ. This is why we've been coming back to the idea of the fruit of the Spirit, where it comes from every week. We only have the fruit of the Spirit when we are growing and abiding in Christ. The more that we abide in Christ, the more that we look like Him, the more that we think like Him, the more that we act like Him in a broken and a weary world. So true goodness only comes as a result of intentionally seeking to grow our relationship in Christ. Billy Graham goes further. He says, goodness goes far deeper. Goodness is love in action. It carries with it not only the idea of righteousness imputed, but righteousness demonstrated in everyday living by the Holy Spirit. It is doing good out of a good heart to please God without expecting medals and rewards. Christ wants this kind of goodness to be the way of life for every Christian. As I kind of process that quote, think about the implications for me. I've been coming back to what has been happening in church history. The more I look at church history, the more I've found comfort that brothers and sisters generations ago, they have been fighting and facing the same issues that we face today. They just look differently. They're dealing with the same problems, although they look vastly different. But it also shows us how the church historically has pursued living out their goodness in a broken world. Now, I want to close with this. There was a massive plague that hit the Roman Empire between uh, 165 and 180 A.D., 
It was estimated that 5 to 10 million people died from this plague. What, we've, what they found was that it was more deadly to be living in cities than it was living in rural communities. Obviously, looking back with what we know about virology, we know that the more people are in, present in one spot, the more they're likely to be infected. But at the height of this plague, roughly 5,000 people were dying on a daily basis. And what happened was people were fleeing from one another. They were spreading out of their, because of their own self-preservation. They didn't want to die. And so what you found was a lot of people moving out of the cities, and the cities became a ghost town because people didn't want to die. As you look about the impact of this plague that happened 2,000 years ago, Christians, rather than fleeing away from the sick and dying, they fled towards the sick and dying because of a death-defying compassion that they had for the most hurting and the most broken. And this isn't a time that Christians were enjoying uh, a lot of rights and privileges that we do. They were persecuted. They could have been executed for exercising their faith in the public realm. And yet here they are going out into the city and they're finding the people that are hurting and, 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 and dying. They are burying the dead at their own expense. They are serving and loving the, the dead and dying. They put themselves at risk, tending to the needs of others regardless of the political affiliation regardless of the social status, and even regardless of the religion, they saw a need and they were stepping in to do good. As we process this, this group of Christians were striving to live out of the goodness of, of God and they were pointing people to the glory of God in their lives. As we think about the implications and what happened as a result of the Christians stepping out and, and, and meeting a specific need, this act that Christians did eventually led to the formation of hospitals. We enjoy hospitals because of the generosity and the goodness of Christians generations ago. A lot of historians also look at this plague as, as what led to Christianity becoming decriminalized a little over 100 years later. But these Christians were devoted to glorifying God because it was God shining through them, enhancing the lives of people around them. They did this because the fruit of spirit of goodness was abiding in them, enhancing and guiding the people around them to the true goodness of God. They had this mindset that it was not about me. Imagine what the church would look like if we allowed the fruit of spirit of goodness to take front row in our lives. Imagine what it would look like at restoration if we put our needs, up, or if we put others' needs above our own. If we strived to live and be good to all people regardless of what they say, regardless of what they do, regardless of, of what's happening. I think this, these past 18 months have created many opportunities for us not to fight for ourselves, but to fight for the good of others. I think we would see just a, 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 a 
people come to know Christ in, in our city, in our country, in our country, lives would be transformed through the goodness of Christ abiding in us. People would come to know Christ. People would come to be baptized. People would be freed from addiction. People would be freed from the bondage of sin if we strive to live out the goodness of the fruit of the Spirit. Imagine what it would look like to see the redemptive power of the cross take hold of people struggling. Young families strengthened because of the goodness of enhancing them as young parents. Think about what it would look like for marriages to grow when people, when spouses are genuinely loving out of goodness and not out of a benefit for themselves. This is how marriages, families, our church, our world has changed. Not when we are striving for our own selves, but when we are making our lives about the goodness and the glory of God. This is what I want for our life. This is what I want for each other. I want people to know the glory of God through our good works, through our, our goodness in the world. This would be God's goodness shining through us. Will you pray with me?